it's interesting, this paradox, we often hear about Indigenous activists, you know, I call them blacktivists, will often say, you know, we're survivors, we've survived, you know, you tried to kill us and we're still here and, you know, we're so strong and blah, blah, blah. So they're saying they're talking about their strength on one hand, but then on the other hand saying, oh, but I need cultural safety. You're basically saying, look, I'm so weak that if I walk into that place, it could be upsetting or hurtful for me. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. It's a very great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Dr. Anthony Dillon, who is a behavioral scientist and researcher at the Australian Catholic University and an Indigenous commentator. And we are going to have a discussion about the mooted voice to Parliament and other matters at the intersection, the cleavage or between Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia, and all of those issues which are very much alive at the moment in the life of our nation. So, Anthony, it's really great to be talking to you again. It's great to be back. Anthony, you penned a really interesting opinion piece that was published in The Australian the other day called Mindset of Action Must Replace Symbolic Gestures. And as an entree into a discussion about the voice to parliament, I'd like to quote for the benefit of our listeners a little bit of the text in that, that piece. You write this, an old mindset dominates Aboriginal affairs that prefers words and symbolic gestures over action short-term thinking over long-term thinking, engaging in endless consultation, meaningless research, political speeches and report writing, over-addressing real problems such as poor health, poverty and violence, and a fear of being labelled racist for pointing out some inconvenient truths, such as stating that racism is not the big culprit holding Aboriginal people back. This new government must embrace a new mindset when considering how best to empower Aboriginal people. However, With its focus on the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it is questionable as to whether such a mindset will be adopted. The principal focus of the statement, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, seems to be a repackaging of the same old dogma that has defined and failed Aboriginal affairs for too many years. Namely, that only Aboriginal people are qualified to speak about Aboriginal issues. Please discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, certainly that last point is something I've been banging on for about many years and you know, well over two decades, whereas I worked in a government department once and the policies and the programs and the literature was all about Aboriginal people should be making decisions regarding Aboriginal people. And that just didn't sit right with me at the time. That was my first introduction to Aboriginal affairs. I, th- I just thought this is this is crazy. Um, can, can't we just frame it as people helping people? You know, if there's a a problem with elderly people in our society, um, sure, it's good to hear from elderly people get their input on what are some issues. But we shouldn't then decide. Okay, you have to be over a certain age in order to 
develop a policy, deliver a program or anything like that for those people. It's just, you know, people helping people. Um, And, you know, if we, of course, if we trace this to the, towards the logical end, we have that terrible situation where we've heard about it far too many times where an Aboriginal kid who needs to be placed in, you know, alternate care outside of home care can or should only be placed with other Aboriginal people, which is just ridiculous. Um, you know, they should be placed with a loving, caring family and uh, lovingness and caring come in all different colours. So, Anthony, I think it's fair to say that the crux of the argument in that part of your opinion piece, and I encourage people to read the full the full piece along with your other stuff, you, you blog, I think, at anthonydillon.com.au, if I've got that correct. You tweet up a storm on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter, and you're well worth listening to there. I think the, the crux, as I read it, and when we've heard a similar argument, I think, from a couple of uh, Indigenous senators, actually, just into Price, and uh, she'll have to forgive me. I, I, I don't remember her name, the new senator from South Australia. Liddell. Yeah. I have both also made a similar point that the voice is, is, I mean, there are other problems here that we can get into potentially, but the voice is about symbolism, discussion, reporting, whereas there are the, there are actually pressing social problems that are affecting indigenous people right now. And you list some of them such as poverty and violence and the lack of economic opportunity, particularly in remote areas. Is that, kind of your key concern about the all this focus on the voice which is coming from the Labor Party at the moment yes and those problems you just mentioned we all know about those problems and we have done for many years yet we're still going down this path of just finding this silver bullet type solution Uh, so that's what I find very frustrating now look I I haven't dismissed the voice altogether totally but I, I am saying that at this stage I can't see a plan that instills confidence in me and others that it's going to deal with the problems we've just mentioned. Now, we see some of their proponents who are so confident, you know, that they just think it's it's so a no-brainer that the voice is going to fix things. They haven't released a plan. They haven't joined the dots for us. They haven't told us, and this is how it will fix those problems. So if they do have that plan... And they want this to get up. They should make that plan very public and talk about that plan. But I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, I think that's one of the key concerns I have because I was thinking about this, and and I have to be transparent. Transparent here. I'm a bit of a well, not a bit of. I'm I'm very conservative when it comes to the constitution. I think it's changing the constitution is a kind of tool of last resort when you've literally run out of options through legislation and policy and civil society action and a whole range of measures just because once it's changed it's almost impossible to (laughs) go back and as a matter of principle i'm personally very reluctant to vote for anything that's vague and i can give it and this is certainly the the case here with the voice and i think there are even proponents arguing that the question put to a referendum and it looks like we are definitely headed to a referendum sometime this term which means the next year or two to just put a question 
along the lines of do you support the creation of a voice to parliament full stop? And I personally, I don't think, no matter how worthy the idea is, I don't think I could ever vote for something so vague. And to just put this in a wider context to show that this for me is not, it has nothing to do with the indigenous element here. I mean, I'm a Republican, but I only support one very specific Republican proposal, which is the most conservative one where the figurehead is chosen by two-thirds of the parliament, basically the John Howard one. So there's no way in hell I'll ever vote for a referendum that just says, do support the creation of a republic, full stop. No, because I'm bitterly opposed to a popularly elected president. I just think as a matter of course, you have to put a detailed proposal if you're ever expecting people to vote for constitutional change. Yeah, and that's you and I uh, and a few others, but I just wonder, I don't know. What is the rest of the public like? Um, so you think there's a chance that uh, the vague version could get up? And look, you know, studies have been done before um, in survey design where you, you can lead a person to a particular answer based on the questions you ask before the main question. So, you know, if this gets framed as, um, in, yeah, and it might be on the ballot form or anything like that, but there could be a lot of... Um, propaganda beforehand, you know, if they have statements or questions like, um, do you believe the suffering of Aboriginal people in this nation is a stain on this nation? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do you believe that Aboriginal people have the same rights as you and I? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do you believe Aboriginal people should be able to voice their concerns? Oh, absolutely. Are you prepared to vote for the voice? Oh, yeah, okay. Now that you put it that way. Can you see how I've kind of led the yeah. person up? And because in their mind, they're, they're then thinking, well, gee, I don't want to silence Aboriginal people. I want them to, to have the same voice I have. And the reality is they already have that same voice. Um, now, let's cut to the chase too. Uh, a point that's worth making up front, and I've said, again, said this for many, many years, if we are really concerned about helping Aboriginal people have a lifestyle and have access to the sorts of things that you and I take for granted, the main proponents of the voice, the Indigenous proponents, um, all of whom I have a great deal of respect for, by the way, because they are high achievers, uh, even if I don't agree with them on many topics they have, certainly risen and um, acquired the status of, of leader. They've been able to acquire that status without the voice, without a treaty, without the Uluru Statement. They've done it. So wouldn't it be best to think, okay, now what is it that enabled you to get to where you are today and we want to replicate that with every other Indigenous person in Australia. Does that make sense? That certainly does. And I would add to that, and I, this is not, um, this is definitely not my idea. I've read this from various commentators, and I, I believe I've got this correct, that at the very moment, and this is kind of an interesting historical political question, really, at the very moment that the idea of a voice, which comes out of the Uluru Statement in 2017, maybe there's a prehistory there too, I don't know about, but it's 
been on the agenda for about five or so years now, you know, properly on the political agenda. Which... By, yeah, by that name. And as I said, it's basically a repackaging of the whole um, paradigm that's been going on for decades that Aboriginal people are the only ones who should talk about Aboriginal issues. Oh, okay. only, only Aboriginal people understand Aboriginal people. So this is just the latest manifestation of that, I believe. Oh, okay. So you you, you see it as simply the latest manifestation yep. of a more long-standing paradigm, the the gist of which is making sort of cutting out non-Indigenous voices in, in well, basically a, I mean, this is probably a horrible way to put it, but gaining full control over the whole Indigenous affairs yeah. portfolio, if I could put it that way. Or a more horrible way of putting it is uh, keeping the Aboriginal industry going and keeping these pe- gatekeepers in their positions. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Oh, yeah. Can, can, can we delete that bit out of the... <laughs> out of the no, no, we can't. That's staying in, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> the... Oh, where was I going to go with that? I, I disrupted my own flow there for a second, but I. The that's right. I was going to going to just note the fact, and, and you've sort of alluded to this as well. I saw one of your tweets that had this enormous list of <laughs> government and sort of civil bodies that are have been established and designed to give voice to Aboriginal Australians on specific policy issues from health and welfare and and. You name it, but the, the thing that's most striking, perhaps, in the very election where Anthony Albanese, I think, surprised a lot of people by elevating a voice to Parliament as the sort of number one policy priority when he took the stage to sort of declare victory in the election back in May. I think I'm right in saying we have a record number of Indigenous Australians in the Parliament on both sides of politics. So it's, they're not all sort of progressives; they're on the left and the right, to put it in those crass political terms. And so that that seems to support your argument that the very people, the sort of, if you like, the Aboriginal elite, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, just those who are very well credentialed and well-educated and have, as you said, really succeeded in Australia, at the very moment that, that they have gotten a platform to even get this off the ground, we have you know, from my point of view, a very welcome number of Indigenous representatives in the parliament. And I'm pleased that they're on both sides of politics because we want, we don't just want sort of skin colour diversity, you want a diversity of ideas. And we tend to think about Aboriginal Australia in very monolithic terms as though, you know, they all think sort of like automatums and they, that there isn't kind of, which is one one concern I have about the voice. Same here. And that's a major problem. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. one, one concern I have about the the voice is once the rubber hits the road, let's say it gets passed in the constitutional referendum and it, it's established, the assumption is it's going to be some harmonious body that doesn't struggle to come to consensus and advises government. But, mm. you know, last time I checked, Aboriginal Australians are human beings, just like non-Aboriginal human beings. They're going to have disagreements, different interests, personality conflicts, and so what's to stop that body becoming factionalised like every other representative body that's ever existed on planet Earth? Yeah, absolutely. And as I've said before, Aboriginal people are people first, Aboriginal second. Yeah, yeah. The the other concern... 
I could, and just while I think of it too, those political leaders that you mentioned, it's my understanding uh, that all of them, I, I guess with the exception of the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Linda Burney, who's, you know, specifically focused on Aboriginal people, those other politicians, they're there to serve the people, not just the Aboriginal people, but um, the people. And, you know, that was very evident with, you know, in my opinion, Trailblazer, who's just been fantastic, best price, when she was a minister in the Northern Territory. She wasn't just there to serve the Aboriginal people. She was there to serve Northern Territory people, you know. That's what I think is great about having some Indigenous senators because they're they're there to represent, in the case of uh, the two senators I mentioned before, an entire state and territory, which is is great. That kind of breaks down your concern about just the whole Aboriginal people talking about Aboriginal people. I'm very happy to have Aboriginal Australians talk about white Australia and the whole country. Absolutely. Could you imagine how if someone was to say to a Aboriginal political leader, Oh, hold on. Uh, are you able to understand the non-Aboriginal people in your area? Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course they can. And vice versa. Non-Aboriginal people can understand uh, the needs of Aboriginal people as well. The other thing that came out of the Uluru statement, which I have to confess, I only read the other day for the first time. And, and I that was an interesting experience. I was a little surprised, actually, having heard so much discussion about it for what, five years now, I was a little surprised to learn it's simply a one-page yeah. document that's very light on detail. I assumed there was a lot more to it. Same here. And, I, and I'm still a little bit nervous. I'm thinking, have I missed something? Uh, maybe it's just the front end for a more comprehensive document, which I haven't seen. That said, I think I'm right in saying that uh, Marsha Langton and I think it's Tom Karma, I haven't read this, but I've heard they've they have... Perhaps they're the only um, people to have done this. Put forward a very detailed proposal for the voice that I hope my memory is correct might run to something like three hundred pages. So there are people at least attempting to put something more detailed. And of course, you can't put a three hundred page proposal to a referendum. So yeah, you need something simpler. But the the other thing that has received a little less attention, although I've come across it in some scholarship. And if there's time, I'll tell you a, a, a funny experience I had <laughs> reading some political science literature on this in Australia. And that's the um, this concept of Makarata, which is mm. seems to be playing second fiddle to the, the voice at this stage. But that that's also a part of the Uluru statement. And I'm going to actually quote from the the statement itself, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it says, quote, we seek a Makarata commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between government and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. Full stop. That's about all the detail we get. This is sort of in the treaty domain, I take it, plus a kind of truth and uh, reconciliation commission, perhaps along the kind of South African lines. I mean, what... What's the Makarata uh, Commission and what, what's your view of that, Anthony? Yeah, look, I, I don't know much about it. Again, it's one of those sort of mystery buzz phrases um, and it's a box that needs to be opened. Um, so, you know, I can't say too much about it uh, other than I I probably know as much or, or less than what you know about it. 
do you have an open mind towards that if it would address the thing that drives your view on this, which is concrete action on the ground that addresses real problems? Yes, sure. Again, if you can come to me with a, a proposal, uh, with an argument, um, yes, I, I'm happy to consider it. But at this stage, it's, I, you know, I don't see much evidence, but I'm, I'm open for it. I mean, the whole the whole thing's um, it's rather extraordinary because this is, according to Anthony Albanese's government, one of the greatest priorities of his term, and yet here we are struggling to even talk about it because, in spite of all of the excitement and the activity, there's so little to to go on, which is a very strange policy context to be in, I think. Yeah, and look, you know, people are both, uh, you know, there's a logical and an emotional side to them, and the two can coexist, and that's good. But it's good to have them, you know, working together, um, balanced. And this whole thing, like, a, you know, a lot of Aboriginal issues, how they're framed, they're framed in a very emotive way. And I can remember on the, you know, reading the stories that come out you know, very shortly after uh, Mr. Albanese was won the, um, you know, won his uh, position, won the election, there were people crying and, uh, you know, saying they can't believe it at last. And, the, you know, and that's obviously appealing to the emotions. Okay, so what's a bit of, you know, a bit of detail to flesh that out? Can you tell us why? You're crying. Why are you so happy about that? And so it's you know all a bit reminiscent of. And I've said this before the the apology by Kevin Rudd all those years ago, which you know I didn't outright oppose, but I did say you know this isn't going to make any difference to Aboriginal people. And you know on that day we just had um, you know people hugging and you know all this sort of thing, and it was nothing but you know short lived fuzzy-wuzzy feelings. Do you think in some way it's because this symbolic stuff, which is clearly clearly very meaningful to some people, if it's going to bring you to tears, then you could hardly say it's having no impact on you. But do you think part of the attraction of this is it's just so much easier than addressing what are some very wicked problems in Australia? Absolutely. Again, same thing I've been saying since day one. Uh, these things, it's much easier to put these things out there than it is to do the, the hard yards. And, you know, as a society, uh, you know, we know that people these days, and it seems to be growing exponentially, are so much driven by immediate gratification. You know, they want something right here and now. And as I said in the, Warren and I said in that article, you know, um, the new mindset needs to focus more on long-term rather than short-term. But, you know, we know if an advertiser talks about their uh, late, latest fitness product where in just three minutes a day you'll have super abs, people are going to rush out and buy it, believing it. Uh, contrast that with an advertisement, you know, here's a program uh, if you train for 50 to 60 minutes a day, four days a week, you'll get fit and healthy. Well, a lot of people say, oh, no, I don't want that. Why, why do that when I can just do the three-minute ab? cruncher exercise yeah. you know and we pay a price 
for that short-term immediate gratification thinking. It's, you know, a little bit like trying to put a Band-Aid on cancer. You know, it might sort of look as if you're doing something, but underneath you've got problems, yeah. which are going to erupt eventually. Yeah, and uh, I suppose that I do wonder if a lot of this, notwithstanding the whole idea of the voice being a special vehicle for Aboriginal people to take control of the conversation about Aboriginal people and to really be in the driving seat of policy, given most policymakers, I guess, are are white and non-Indigenous. All of this stuff from the apology to the very very notion of the voice, which let's face it, is a very sort of abstract, almost mystical, pseudo-spiritual idea along with Makarata, just purely on the empirical observation that there's really little to it other than a couple of lines of text. And this is this also brings in, I think, the whole acknowledgement to country thing here is there's some very simple things white people can do that really... Um, ease the guilt, make them feel like they're, they're taking simple concrete steps towards reconciliation, which at the end of the day mean they don't have to be burdened with the really shocking and difficult challenges like sexual violence in remote yeah. communities and just the, the poverty and substance abuse, things that we all care about. And that that how can that not bring anyone to tears except yeah. the coldest of heart? We all want our brothers and sisters in those communities, like you say, to enjoy the same sort of prosperity that other Australians do. Yeah. But of course, most of us can't, not only can most of us not do anything, we we have no connection to these communities. We've never been to them. We're never going to go to them. And so it's in order to live knowing that's happening, it, it's, you know, doing a simple acknowledgement of country is a really good way yeah. to show that you care without really having to Exactly. And, it, you know, it's as if you've read, you know, stuff I've written before, but I have said this exact same thing. It's so easy for people to sit in their nice, comfortable lounges in their heated or air-conditioned rooms or whatever, far removed from where the problems are, to sit there and say something like, I oppose racism. Ah, oh, I feel so much better now. I've done my bit for Aboriginal affairs. I mean, just making a statement like that is useless. And also, as I said in the in that article with Warren, uh, racism is not the big culprit affecting Aboriginal people, but we we see, you know, signs everywhere and reports everywhere, and organisations making these, you know, grand gestures, their 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 stance against racism, and that sort of thing. Very easy to do that. Again, leaves you with a short term wonderful fuzzy wuzzy feelings, but it's you know it's been a solution that's been offered to a a problem that, you know, doesn't fit. Um, again, it's, we got to do the hard yards if we want to see Aboriginal people be all that they can be. You know, and that's not to say there's, there's not a place for, you know, celebratory dances and symbolism, that sort of thing. But that has to happen along with doing the hard work. Yeah. That's certainly my observation when it comes to welcome to country and acknowledgement to country. I've been at events where it felt not only appropriate but meaningful. Yeah, and I and I and I think the in some ways 
the more significant the event, the more meaningful it is to include a kind of honouring of the Indigenous culture, which is a massive part of the Australian story. It was ignored for a long period of time, has some very ugly episodes in it. And personally, I'm all for recognising that and incorporating the place of Indigenous Australians, which is special and different from all the, the settlers and migrants that have come that have come since. So if it's something like the opening of the parliament or some government building or a national day, you know, Australia day or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, that's perhaps a bad example because of the controversy around it. I'm all for it, but this is my observation. And this is a very recent development in my experience. Now you, you have basically white people doing an acknowledgement to country at every single internal meeting in a lot of organizations you can do. And it starts to feel to me like it's becoming very empty and devoid of any meaning to, to be in a meeting where some white executive does an acknowledgement to country and then says, now let's talk about the budget. It just feels, yeah, it feels in a way that it's, that it's actually doing the opposite of what it's intended to do, which kind of cheapening the acknowledgement because it, it, it's so out of place, but the curious thing is it, it's white Australia and perhaps supported by um, certain Indigenous voices, I don't know, seems set on creating this as, as some kind of weird pseudo-religion or a new civil religion, yeah. in, in my view, where there are these rituals that we go through. Yeah, and look, I'm also starting to see some people when they do their welcome or acknowledgement, <laughs> and they'll, you know, if it's an Indigenous person, Aboriginal person, they also tack onto it, and my sovereignty has never been ceded. Well, whatever. Okay. Does that make you feel better? Um, now, also, having said that, I think people can detect sincerity too, as opposed to just going through the motions. I've, a number of times I've been, you know, I go to see shows and talent quests and that, you know, at the local pub or something, and you'll see the compare just to a very simple, brief, acknowledgement of country and you can tell it's sincere and they say it and then they move on so i don't have a problem you know if they're going to do it when it's um something sincere and we then get on with the the business at hand that's fine but yeah far too often especially in businesses and organizations and academia you do see people you know just doing this going through the uh emotions yeah okay right right next kind of thing well, as a, as a kind of herd mentality, once everyone's doing it, yeah, there there's a sort of subliminal pressure because I, I think in the minds of a, a lot of non-Indigenous indigenous Australians, once a culture takes over where you do this at every single meeting in an organisation or public event, to not do it starts to feel like a political statement as though you're against it, which exactly. is not necessarily the, the, the case. But yep. I, I wonder if that... There's that kind of pressure at working people too, and I've your sincerity point is well made because I, I have uh, seen an acknowledgement to country done by people I know actually have ties to the local indigenous community, yeah. and for me that's much more meaningful than people talking about elders past, present, and future who couldn't name any elder. Yeah. And so it's just it is just a kind of bit of liturgical language. Yeah, and actually just uh, tacking onto that. Yes, when you don't do something which others are doing, you can be seen to be, be making a, a protest. And that, that's 
happened to me a few times where I'll go to, you know, I go to these events where there's an Indigenous theme or, or whatever, and every, everyone there introduces themselves as, you know, I'm a proud such and such, I'm a proud Yorta Yorta man, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I mean, they look like you, but that's another story. And when it comes to me, I just say, I'm Anthony. And that's it. And then I get this criticism, oh, you know, he's obviously ashamed uh, or he's just not, you know, he's not Aboriginal. Well, you know, I'm just, I don't know what that means to be not Aboriginal or to be Aboriginal. Aboriginal. I'm just Anthony. Um, but yes, you know, it's then seen as because you don't do what the others are doing, you're somehow protesting. Uh, but it's just your, your personal preference. Well, I mean, until very recently, Anthony, there was nothing controversial about saying, hi, I'm Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I cop criticism, you know, he's obviously ashamed or he's, or he's obviously trying to hide or, you know, no, I'm just Anthony. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a, in a strange way, Anthony, and I mean you're you're the the one with psychological training here, yeah. or training in psychology, I should say, yeah. psychological training. It sounds like you work for the military or something. something. Yeah. But, but you know, from my from my sort of layperson's perspective, you're showing actually enormous security and pride yeah. by virtue of the fact that you can just say, um, "I'm Anthony." Yeah. Yes, I have Indigenous heritage, but I don't need to state it because yeah. I'm just... I, I, it's not a point of insecurity for me where I have to make sure you know. Exactly. And there was a, a little while ago, a couple of years ago, I was a part of this group where we were dealing with a um, problem impacting on Indigenous people. I don't want to give, give away too much. And we met, and then a few weeks later, we all come back and, and met again. And at the first meeting when we all had to introduce ourselves... And everyone was giving their lineage, you know, where they're from and that. I said, look, I'm Anthony. Um, I have Aboriginal ancestry through my father and I have English ancestry through my mother. And then a few weeks later when we all met again, a lot of the people this time spoke about both parents, which I I thought was nice. I thought, well, you know, maybe I had a little bit of impact there. There you go. You're, start, you're starting a counter Ugh. counter trend that's going to make you even more popular, I, I imagine. I mean, I mean there's, nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong with recognizing the whole person. Well, you know? well, I mean, you know, what a controversial idea. But <laughs> the uh, and and that is, that is, you know, from my perspective, one of the sort of more perplexing elements of this whole question and we're, we're undergoing some profound cultural shift at the moment i'm not exactly sure where it's going to land but i'm sure i don't need to tell you you'd be well aware of the quite startling stats in the latest census with the explosion in the number of people identifying as indigenous this whole trend to identify to or to really highlight and emphasize your indigenous ancestry which makes perfect perfect sense i mean it's that's part of who you are why wouldn't you be proud of that yeah. but at the it seems to the exclusion particularly in people that have let's face it very serious ancestry outside of um their indigenous ancestry yeah. that may or may not be english or irish or scottish it could be italian or who knows what i mean australia is a very multicultural society yeah. it's a it's a it's an odd 
I say odd in the sense of just thinking about this as an intellectual. I want to understand it. it it's clearly, again, there's some cultural trend where it's become chic or perhaps it makes a political statement. I'm not sure what to I really identify it, with a part of who you are rather than, as you say, the whole person. Advantageous. Oh, you think it's as uh, yeah. as maybe, uh, straightforward as that? Maybe there's some benefits. Uh, we'll, we'll let the listeners decide for themselves. Okay. If that's, okay. that's the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, one thing I do, um, you know, I, and I always say this when I give lectures on Aboriginal health or psychology, I explain that I'm Anthony, I'm heterosexual, I have Christian values, I'm from Queensland, uh, I'm in my mid-50s and other things. All those things sort of make up or contribute to I, and I have Aboriginal ancestry and non-Aboriginal ancestry, obviously. And all those things make up who I am, but I don't elevate any of them above the other to, to build my identity around it. It's just, you know, I've got all these different parts to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned identity there because I wonder if what we're seeing is just something that's symptomatic of the wider identity crisis in this part of the 21st century. Because you look at the whole transgender issue, the way that sexual identity is now being elevated to the point where, you know, a person might be gay and that as though that's the entire entirety or the only important bit of information or the defining feature of who they are rather than yeah. all the other things that make up the human being we're sort of very identities undergoing some strange yeah transformation at the moment yeah. it is interesting with the the gay friends and relatives i have you wouldn't know it i mean they're not they're not keeping it a secret but just in your day-to-day conversation with them you wouldn't know it uh, they're just like you and i well but, i guess uh, they don't introduce themselves as you know hi i'm john a gay man from sydney yeah um and you know certainly there might be a time and a place where it's that's appropriate, but for general day-to-day business, it's not. Um, but, you know, the ego always seeks to be separate and special. And you can be special by being the best at something or being the, the, the worst or, you know, at least disguising yourself as the, the worst or almost downtrodden in something. So we need to shift the trend from separateness or, you know, separatism to connectedness. Yeah. Just remind us that we are connected yeah well i mean ultimately we share more Mm. than we don't share don't we as human beings and particularly we share this we're all part of the same nation complex and yeah and contentious though some aspects of its history and notwithstanding the the challenges we are you know part of the same story i mean i i my ancestors came here in in different forms i didn't choose to be born here but i'm but I'm here now, although my lineage is much younger than Indigenous Australians. But at the end of the day, we're part of the same story now. Absolutely. <laughs> Whatever you think of it. And we're, we're, we're part of the same fabric. We're sort of interwoven. Yeah. Um, and really the same family, if you can think of Australia as a, as yeah. a family, which yeah. you're not going to if we yeah. go down the separatist path. But yeah. I, I prefer to think of, you know, I have a shared citizenship and attachment to, the, to this nation. It might be different yeah. depending on your cultural background, but at the end of the day, we've got to live together. And I think a way to change that paradigm is 
borrowing or using the words of social commentator, social scientist Hugh Mackay, he said, instead of asking, how am I doing? We should ask, how are we doing? And we should start thinking like that, you know, how are we doing? Not just how are we Aboriginal people doing, but just how are we people doing, whichever company you're in at the time. Um, you know, if you had a party with friends, how, how are we doing? And then more generally speaking, yeah, you know, thinking, where's a nation? Where's a, a planet? How are we doing? Anthony, you don't just sort of comment on Indigenous matters. You, you also write quite a lot about cancel culture. I, I suspect you might have a little bit of personal experience here, given your your sort of straight talk in the area of Indigenous affairs, which is one of the pointy ends of the cancel culture, yeah. I guess. And you, you even published on the same day as the article we've been discussing about The Voice. Uh, you published an article on cancel culture. I'll, I'll link that article and the, the other one on The Voice in the show notes. How, in your mind, or even in your experience, how, how are these two issues connected? Everything we've been discussing thus thus far and cancel culture. Oh, very highly related, simply because when other people who look at this conversation uh, and disagree or look at my comments, my tweets or whatever, um, they just want to shut you down. And a very easy way to shut someone down is not say you're wrong but to say I'm deeply offended by that you hurt my feelings as I said in that article no one really likes to be on the receiving end of I'm offended you hurt my feelings Um, because we're then made to feel guilty that we caused and that's what I was saying in that article that's what I always say Uh, you know so if I say something and you claim to be offended there's this assumption that I caused the offence in you. No, I didn't cause the offence, you just took the opportunity you know, and it's a little bit like saying, you know, I walk past a shop and on the counter they have this display of beautiful chocolates and creams and I look at it and I take one and I say, well, it, they were so attractive they caused me to take it no, they didn't cause me it was just simply an opportunity which I took. And so it is with, with offence. Uh, people uh, like to be offended, play the offended victim because it has payoffs. It's a great way to shut someone down. It's a great way to cancel them. And that happens so often in Aboriginal affairs. We see two things. One, the non-Aboriginal person can be shut down very quickly um, because, you know, apparently they don't have this thing called lived experience and therefore couldn't possibly know what's happening and that sort of thing. So they get cancelled very quickly and called racist. And then the second thing is you can have Indigenous people who also get cancelled because, well, you're not the right sort of Indigenous. You're a sellout. You're an uncle Tom. Uh, You know, you're, you're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome or whatever. So they get cancelled and the opponents, the attackers will say, you know, what you said was so highly offensive and disgusting and all that sort of thing. So it's just a game. Rather than saying, I disagree with you, it's so much more powerful to say, you've offended me. And that's meant to end the the conversation. Uh, 
Except when it comes to me, if someone pulled that line out, I just say, look, you can make yourself as offended as you want. That's my position and I'm sticking to it. You know, and I'm hope, open to hearing a counter view. That's fine. Uh, give me that, but don't just give me the oh, I'm offended line because it's not going to work with me. So, yes, you know, at some time, I can't remember what come first, my interest in Aboriginal affairs or psychology, but the two, two uh, there's a lot of common ground there where it's, it's good to know about both because there are going to be disagreements. That's fine. In Aboriginal affairs, it's fine to have disagreements. But let's do them. Okay, I can understand how you might see it that way, but here's how I see it. Rather than, oh, what you just said, that's showing your racism or that's showing your ignorance. That's just ridiculous. That's baby talk. So, Yeah, it. you can really see the, I mean, apart from the appeal of being empowered, because it's quite empowering to shut someone down. I mean, if you can get someone cancelled, yeah. It's a real achievement. Oh, I, mean, I can only imagine that's a real power trip for someone that doesn't really have any power, but if they can garner a kind of social backlash and get someone fired from the job or kicked off a social media platform, that really is a form of lived power, shall we say. Oh, exactly. And that feeds the ego. Mm. Um, and you know, I use that term power trip in that article, yeah. I believe. Um, but so the, yeah, other, the-, the other appeal I can see is it really absolves you of the need to actually undertake the difficult task of actually having an argument. Oh, exactly. Having to do your research, think through your thoughts, put together, communicate clearly, have rebuttals, listen carefully to the view the other person's putting forward because arguments can be exhausting. I can, exactly. I, I've, I've had that experience myself. But yeah. to say I'm simply offended and try and... It gives you a ticket out, if you like, of it's, having to have the conversation. It's intellectual laziness. And it's just like saying, well, my lived experience tells me so. Yeah. Very, very lazy thinking. So, Anthony, what, what kind of reaction do you, do you get? Have you been getting since you stuck your head up way above the parapet and, and started, um, you know, calling out and questioning certain things that are happening in the indigenous space overwhelmingly positive um and so that that, including from indigenous australians yes so yeah from both sides um now of course that's not to say that you don't have your haters out there yes you do um but you're more likely to hear from the the people who are pleased to hear and relieved to hear what I have to say. So yeah, overwhelmingly positive. And those who are negative, they typically engage in the same sorts of responses as, as what we just spoke about. Oh, well, you're a sellout. Oh, well, you know, you've got no lived experience, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. The If I could just uh, pivot back to one of the other weird and wonderful, if I could put it that way, aspects of this beast of I don't know it's really hard to find the language to talk about what's going on in the in the cultural <laughs> space like it really is uh, there's there's room here for someone to write a good book I think trying to sort of lay out some conceptual clarity around it but one of the terms that I think comes up came up in your article about the voice and listeners will be very familiar with this new term for all I know it comes out of America but this idea of cultural safety and 
you know, I was telling you off air uh, an anecdote that someone told me who works in the Victorian government who has to regularly consult internal Indigenous advisors, I guess part of that industry you're talking about. I don't know exactly what the title is, but sort of cultural safety is one of the things, it's one of the boxes they have to check for every policy. And this person was telling me how difficult it is to actually even understand the advice and implement it, which to me is a sure sign that the the concept is, again, a kind of pseudo-religious, mystical concept that's very hard to actually articulate in practice. I mean, what what are we to make of this idea of cultural safety? Well, I just wonder, those who claim they need cultural safety, and yes, I see it often too, is, so, is cultural safety an issue when they go shopping, when they go to the cinema, when they walk into McDonald's and Hungry Jack's, when they go to the football, you know, all, all those sorts of things, when they catch a bus? Is cultural safety a concern, an issue there? I think not. But in organisations which these days are, are tripping over themselves to play this role of, you know, we, we um, again, that intellectual laziness, rather than doing the hard yards on the ground, you know, can put up a few signs or, or whatever and, and, you know, change the, uh, the signature block in their emails and all that sort of thing. They will do those sorts of things to say, well, you know, I've done my part now. I've made a, I've made a difference when in actual fact they haven't. And I think, if anything, you're doing the opposite. You're not helping. You're moving things backwards. And look, it's interesting, this paradox. We often hear about Indigenous activists, you know, I call them blacktivists, will often say, you know, we're survivors, we've survived, you know, you tried to kill us and we're still here and, you know, we're so strong and blah, blah, blah. So they're saying they're talking about their strength on one hand, but then on the other hand saying, oh, but I need cultural safety. You're basically saying, look, I'm so weak that if I walk into that place, it could be upsetting or hurtful for me. And again, at this stage, watch this space, it could be soon in shopping centres and cinemas and McDonald's, you will see things that are meant to signify, represent cultural safety or, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, maybe by having just said that now, I've, I've given someone an idea that they're going to, um, you know, introduce something that represents cultural safety at their, their business or organisation. I hope not, but it's, it could be coming. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no, and I think your point is very well made. It's the the sort of the scope of cultural safety, at least at this say, stage, seems very selective, particularly to do with interactions with the the government. And, I, and I'm going to guess that the argument there would be, well, we've been mistreated by the government, so that <sighs> unlike McDonald's, so that there's <laughs> there's is this sort of unique need there. But there is a kind of intellectual incoherence to the idea that special measures are required in certain settings, but otherwise that the same person that needs cultural safety in one setting can can get about their business without um, too much trouble. But then again, perhaps the activist, Anthony, would, would agree with you and say, yes, you know, we don't think for a second it's not that uh, 
an Aboriginal person that walks into McDonald's is not feeling oppressed or feeling some suffering some kind of uh, trauma. It is on stolen stolen land after yeah, all. Yeah. Uh, so may, maybe they would say, well, that that's exactly. You yeah. and I, Anthony, we're on a unity ticket here. This is exactly what we're trying to move towards. And look, the, the problem is as soon as you put forward a solution, a solution like that, you'll have a lot of people standing up with the problem. Yeah, oh, yeah, I've got that problem and thank you for that, for that solution. Um, so, you know, it create, creates a demand sort of thing. And just very quickly, that was how Warren Mundine summed it up so eloquently with the voice. He said it's basically a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, and that from one of the most prominent Indigenous voices that, like you say, has never needed a, a special voice in Parliament to. No, and he come from he come from really, uh, and he's spoken about it. You know, humble beginnings, um, where you know he. Uh, missed out on a lot, um, you know, had lots of love in the family, uh, but he knows what it's like to live on the ground in the dirt and look at where he is today. Yeah. yeah. The, just, I mean, we're talking talking about cultural safety. I mean, I guess I could do some research, but I, I honestly have no idea what the actual content is and I mean, I, tell, I, can, I think it's pretty clear you're sceptical of the whole idea, but could you help someone like me understand, like, what what does that actually mean in practice? Like, those who are, who argue that, that there is a need for cultural safety, what, do you, what are some of the kind of measures that get rolled out? Yeah, look, it is a bit murky at this stage, which kind of gives them licence to do anything, but I guess, you know, some will say, well, I feel much safer when you have acknowledged that you're on Aboriginal land mm -hmm. and maybe it means putting a plaque up or showing Aboriginal artwork. And I, I'm not opposed to showing Aboriginal artwork. That, that's great. Um, but to say that it, we do it because it provides safety uh, is, is a bit silly. So, it, you know, it's one of those things where they could define it to, you know, mean whatever it is they, they want it to mean. Um, and it's you know it's this is what happens when you put on the cloak of culture. Um, suddenly, safety is an issue, and sensitivities are an issue, and that sort of thing. And from what I can see, you know, cultural safety seems to be just a an expansion or a rolling out of uh, what was around a decade ago, where cultural sensitivities was the big term, and now it's kind of morphed or expanded into cultural safety um, is very much needed. So, yeah, you know, it's a bit of an open book as to what it can be. And, again, it might be one of those things where uh, only Aboriginal people can know what it means and it shouldn't be up to the white man to decide what it is. Mm -hmm. I guess this is one of the things a voice to parliament could potentially do, yeah. come up with a <laughs> national yeah. cultural yeah. safety. Yeah, look, Plan. I think, yeah, and I think it's uh, well, one one aspect of cultural safety is don't disagree with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, as a white person, don't you disagree with me because it brings up these feelings of being oppressed by the white man. <laughs> you think so again? Intellectual laziness.
I mean, from a psychological point of view, you know, one of my first reactions to all this is to think this really can't be good for the people no. um, propagating this this line. It just seems so obviously psychologically unhealthy to live in a kind of perpetual trauma and to, if, if you like, traumatize every, you know, the most trivial experiences of, you know, yeah. calling up the government or getting a letter from the government. It Surely long-term that can't be good for any human being. No, it's not. And for two reasons, that, you know, you're going to be criticised of saying that word trivial. Um, you know, someone will say, well, you know, well, you haven't walked in my shoes, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But yes, as I said earlier, it paints a picture of Indigenous people as being so weak that they need to be protected from ghosts almost. And as I'm saying this, I just I just had this image that of my my father, my his brothers and sisters and his parents, and they're all just so I mean they'd be laughing at this whole idea that they need this special they're all just great people, great citizens, great contributors to society. And they just get about their um, day-to-day lives like you and I did, and as did my grandparents. Um, so, you know, they'd be shaking their heads at this thing. So, yes, it's disempowering in the sense that it it tells a person that, you know, you're basically weak and need this special protection. But also, the other thing, again, it is disconnecting people. And we should, should be focusing on connectedness and never forget that the commonalities between us far outweigh the differences. So in some, I see it, it doing two things that are wrong. It weakens, disempowers people, and it disconnects mm. people. Well, this rule applies to me. I need cultural safety. You don't need cultural safety. You know, just I was struck then as you spoke about your family, right back to grandparents, because the common assumption will be, well, the further back you go, the more oppressed and benighted and alienated and difficult life must have been for Aboriginal people. And 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 it just made me wonder whether... I got lucky as role models. To have them as role models, I really hit the jackpot. Uh, Same with my uncles and aunties. Well, that's kind of what I was going to ask. That is, are you the exception that proves the rule? Or is the picture much more mixed than the impression we're given from activists that is how represent like clearly there's plenty of suffering to go around like so no one can doubt that there is disadvantage that does come from generational historical government policies and other issues i I don't think that that is contestable but well they are are factors factors, but you know we've also got other things in place to counter those factors as well you know it's, it's a little bit like um, you know, yes, the sun is going to cause me sunburn, no question about it, and I, I can't turn the sun off, but I can apply other strategies, sunscreen, a hat, stay in the shade, that sort of thing. So, yes, the sun is one factor, but there's also those other protective factors as well that can be taken advantage of. Does that analogy yeah, yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this... Yeah, I feel like I have to ask this question because there there is one of the com- complexifying factors here is that there's such a broad cultural spectrum spectrum 
in the indigenous world. So we have remote communities where people are living on their ancestral lands. They, there are communities that speak English as a second language. They, they're still very much tied and uh, defined to some extent. Shaped Their life is shaped by their ancient cultures. Of course, it's come into contact with Western culture. So it's not like they're just living a purely traditional lifestyle. And then there's a whole spectrum that comes into the urban centers where there are people that have indigenous ancestry and identify as indigenous, but are often very Western in terms of their education, their their mores, and, and they're clearly urban people. They're not out hunting turtles or finding widgery grubs or whatever. Yeah. So... I just, I just wonder, clearly a lot of the people, not all, but a lot of the people we see at least, the most visible people uh, tend to be more more urban, uh, sort of culturally Western. I'm talking about the people that come up with concepts like cultural safety because I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect something like cultural safety as a concept to come out of Arnhem Land or the Tiwi yeah. Islands. Producing themselves in terms of I'm a proud Yorta Yorta man or whatever, um, you know, I was just up at Alice Springs a few weeks ago and I was mixing with locals, lots of them. And, you know, I'd introduce myself, oh, Anthony, and they would just say their name, you know, it was, and it was clear, you know, they were Aboriginal, but it was just, hi, I'm Fred. Yeah. It was as simple as that. So is there a disconnect? This is what I'm wondering. If there's a bit of a, how representative of the more traditional Aboriginal communities is are the activists. I mean, I generally don't know, so I'm just asking. No, they're not. Okay. They're not representative. As simple as that? Mm. I guess they're probably worried about more tangible issues, the kind of things that that drives you, you know, the the sort of living conditions and opportunities, economic opportunities. Yeah, the people in these places, yeah. 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 Anthony, you mentioned, interestingly, that evolutionary language from cultural sensitivity to cultural safety which is a really interesting conceptual move <laughs> conceptual move the the thing that i've noticed because my my own context has undergone this is we seem to have gone through three or, or two big terminological changes so when i was growing up as a kid in the 80s it was aboriginal this aboriginal that then at some point, I don't know if it was the 90s or the noughties, Indigenous really came in and started to supplant Aboriginal, although the two go side by side. And now now there's been a very deliberate shift to move to First Nations. And I've heard of organisations officially like, you know, we're changing the language. And I've noticed the ABC at some point very relatively recently They've adopted the language of First Nations, which is, I believe, what they use in Canada. Uh, what what's going on here? Again, it's I think it's that need to be special and to have grounds for offence. You know, you'll have people saying, you know, I'm not an Aboriginal person; I'm a First Nations person. You got it wrong. Now say sorry and use me by the correct term. And you know, we see that in other areas of life too, where you know, how you refer to people, we won't, won't go there at this stage. Um, but what I find more interesting, it's not so much the transition to First Nations. And again, if they, if they want to play that game, that's fine. I don't have a, um, you know, I, I 
I'm more comfortable saying Aboriginal and, and Indigenous, but if they want me to say First Nations, that's fine. But what I find more interesting is when I went to primary school, I was taught Aboriginal is the adjective, Aborigine is the noun. So you have an Aboriginal person, Aboriginal artwork, but he or she is an Aborigine. And that changed a few years ago where suddenly the term Aborigine was disrespectful or offensive. And it's not. Just, you know, someone just one day decided we're not going to use that because it's offensive. How? How is it offensive? I mean, I've got to say all the sort of chopping and changing is quite dizzying in this space as a non-Indigenous person. And it it makes it much more difficult in my view, not more simple to work towards what you, what struck, struck me in the past as being the goal, which was reconciliation. Because all of this stuff gives you a sense of division because all, you know, suddenly I'm using the wrong term, even though that term was deemed inoffensive yesterday. And now suddenly I've got to worry about cultural safety. I'm about to have to vote on a referendum on a voice that I don't really know much about. I've now got to get my head around the Makarata uh, process. And then, of course, there's all the the social challenges of Indigenous people that are really difficult and awful and that I, I need to care about because we do need to care about that. And, I mean, I'm, am I right that I don't know the exact time frame, but it feels like about 15 years ago, the key term we heard a lot about was reconciliation. And I felt like what um, Indigenous Australians were trying to work towards and with white or non-Indigenous Australians of goodwill was towards this concept of reconciliation, which is a wonderful term amongst all the, the sea of terms. That's one I I like the idea of. It's complex and you need to think about what it is. But I don't hear about reconciliation so much anymore unless I'm mistaken. And and I, I, I do share your fears that a lot of the, the direction that Aboriginal affairs, Indigenous affairs, First Nation affairs has evolved into does seem to divide more than it brings together. We've got like sorry day. This is a big emphasis on apologizing. A lot of people don't just do uh, acknowledgement to country. They talk about stolen land. You know, I'm on stolen land and acknowledging that, which is a kind of way of delegitimizing the entire Australian enterprise. And then you know, all, all of these issues, I mean, is reconciliation still the goal here or has it morphed into something more into a sort of recognition, if I could put it that way? Uh, just before I answer that question, I just had a, a thought bubble then. I just wonder how long before the, whatever the official title for Linda Burney is, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Indigenous People, whatever, I wonder how long before that changes into the Minister for First Nations people. Well, I thought I thought you were going to go one step further and say before it gets an Indigenous title. So what, what do you mean? Well, like like they, they, it might get an Indigenous word. So instead of being oh. Minister, it might be... Because that, that, that's very much um, in fashion at the moment as well. 
Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that could that could very well happen. But you're right. But I, but I have no doubt that uh, before the end of this term, it will be Minister for First Nations. It's got to be. And that will that will be seen as a huge advancement. You know, oh, this is a minister who really cares and respects. Um, anyway, that's not to say she's not doing that now. But I'm I'm saying, uh, yeah, you know, she, she, well, you know she'll, be applauded. The, she'll be applauded. You that. know what the problem is, Anthony? I. Like my view on symbolism is it doesn't actually do anything concrete, but it can be meaningful. So I'm not opposed to symbolism. I think humans are, are symbolic animals in a way. And so symbols are meaningful and in, and important. The problem is if you chop and change your symbols all the time, it kind of undermines the very purpose of symbols, which is they, they need a kind of consistent history. So the most powerful symbols are ancient symbols that have a long lineage. So as long as we keep chopping and changing the terminology and introduce the, as long as there's this conceptual fluidity, dare I say it, fluidity is a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a uh, difficult term there too, then it makes it very hard for this symbolism to take root, embed, and actually do what symbolism is supposed to do, which is kind of evoke some common reaction. Uh, speaking of words too, did you say complexizing or something before? Complexifier, I think I Complexifier. said. I hope I said. Is that a word? I haven't heard it before, but anyway. Look, I'm going to say that you'll find it in the dictionary, okay. and if you don't, we won't be around to. Uh, <laughs> I won't be around to hear the <laughs> the outcome. We'll let listeners look that up. Okay. So, what was it you just said? What, what did you say? Oh, just the the you need some kind of stability, yeah, and longevity and and tradition for symbols to actually do what they're supposed to do, which is evoke a kind of common reaction and a, a kind of shared, uh, if you like, aesthetic sense. But if you're constantly chopping and changing your symbols, it kind of undermines yeah. the very purpose of symbols. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I know wherever I go around the world in Australia, when I see those big yellow golden arches, I know that I can get a Big Mac. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Come to yeah. identify it. Uh, but also with symbols and symbolising too, uh, yes, consistency, like you said, uh, but that's symbols are fine so long as it doesn't take the place of mm. doing the hard work. Now, I've heard people say, yes, but you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, you can, but it, it seems to be in Aboriginal affairs, we're not doing two things at once. We're focusing just on the symbols. So uh, that's worth considering. So what about this reconciliation oh. point? I mean, what happened to reconciliation? Is that still the ultimate goal here, or have we abandoned that for some other goal that's a little no. amorphous? No, I don't think it's abandoned. It seems to have sort of dropped down a little bit it's it's still around and again it's you know a bit of a nebulous term and i think you know ultimately rightly or wrongly it has come to mean i think the term has come to mean having you know closing the gap or having aboriginal people living living their lives just like most aussies do so for as long as there's that disadvantage and suffering you'll have people saying See, we still haven't achieved reconciliation mm-hmm. yet. So you know, it's changed. It's I think it's changed its um, meaning a little bit. You know, a bit of concept creep there, maybe. Well, uh, in a way, I wonder if it's become more meaningful in that, with all the emphasis on symbolism at the moment, reconciliation has perhaps becoming more reoriented, reoriented, reorientated 
now I'm doubting my my verbs. Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> but but uh, towards, like you say, addressing the gap, the concrete challenges, which do, let's face it, well, whatever conservatives think, you know, settlement had a massive impact on the indigenous yeah. people living here, and 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 a lot of negative impact, and that is generational. I know that we can talk about the whole notion of generational trauma is a slightly different thing, but there are there are people suffering disadvantage that does trace its roots back, in my view, to to settlement. And we well, all know again, that that's a one factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, and and like like you say, with the the fact that there are indigenous Australians who didn't need a voice in order to find their voice, there are uh, indigenous Australians that have overcome that disadvantage and made it. But of course, it wasn't easy for them and for every person that succeeds i guess there are too many that that don't succeed which is the reality so perhaps one solution here for those who are more concerned about addressing the the real lived disadvantage rather than the the sort of intellectualized lived whatever is to reappropriate the term reconciliation and reorient it reorientate it towards addressing the gap yeah and leave the symbolism to the the symbolizers yeah sounds fine yeah. <laughs> um you know if it if it means getting um if it means eliminating disadvantage um that's fine yeah, yeah because the the great problem here it seems to me is it this is one conclusion you can draw from the perpetual evolution of what's required in this space so every time you start to address one issue let's just take cultural safety it's become a bit of a whipping boy in this discussion but let's say you okay so you start to address cultural safety then then before that's even fully addressed another task if you like is found discovered or concocted and so you wonder what the end point is or if there even is an end point that is is there even a moment that can be defined where we overcome our history and we can just start living as australians which that's not to say that nothing will be done we've already got a lot there's the welcome to country acknowledgement there's we may end up with a with a voice and you have lots of different things going on. But I mean, is it, I find it really hard to see what the logical conclusion here is. Like we're on a path somewhere mm. and it is, it does seem to becoming it. I wouldn't say it's becoming divisive. I guess it's divisive for some, some people. It has the potential to separate and divide, but at the moment, I think non-Indigenous Australia is just complying with whatever they're asked to comply with. But at some point, I I, I think there will be a backlash because because it, it it becomes either too absurd or becomes too burdensome. Yeah. And when you talk to people privately, even people of goodwill who who genuinely want to do the culturally safe, appropriate thing, you know, when you get them privately. They know a lot of it's nonsense, and they'll say that. Mm. But of course, everyone's going to toe the line mm. publicly because of the cancellation risk. Yeah. 
So is yeah. there a logical endpoint yeah. here, or are we just on a pathway to constant? <laughs> no. Look, I think I can't see a, an endpoint anytime soon. Uh, maybe it, you know, even when today's activists die out, will they pass the torch on to someone else? I don't know. I think it will just, hopefully it'll just be a reduction in, in the numbers mm-hmm. of people who are stirring stirring the pot. Um, but, you know, it's certainly not, not going to go away anytime soon, simply because, I guess, we know that the problems facing the most disadvantaged Aboriginal people currently aren't going to be fixed up immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're still going to have those reminders there that there's work to do. But, you know, uh, it'd just be good to see if we could see some practical action taking place. Um, Anthony, on that uh, somewhat sober note, I think we'll have to bring (laughs) this conversation to an end. We can't solve all of these issues, but it is great actually to be able to discuss them. And I think more people do need to discuss them. And I think really the the idea of yours I admire the most, which I think is very powerful, is this idea that Aboriginal business is everyone's business. And we yeah. we all as Australians need to be able to talk about it freely if we're going to actually make any true advance rather than having all of our speech controlled on this topic. So thanks for the thanks for your contribution to the public discussion on this topic and for the opportunity to give me a to have a conversation with me on this show. Yeah, good to be on again. Thank you.